We're going to be looking at Job chapter 15 this morning. It's on page 426 of the ESV Pew Bibles. This is part of our sermon series through the book of Job. We're going through book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, as we always do. And here we are in Job. So this is the, the series called God and Suffering, because that is the focus of, of this book. It answers the question about undeserved suffering. And along the way, it wrestles with all kinds of different topics. So we're going to be continuing right where we left off. This will be Eliphaz's second speech in the book of Job. But before we go to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we approach your word this morning in faith. We come expectantly. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. Show us the true meaning of this passage. We don't want to leave here this morning wondering what Job chapter 15 is about. And Father, also help us to apply what you teach us so that we can live and glorify you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain areas of the country that are more susceptible to damage from high winds. And that's because they lie on the coastlands. This is where hurricanes make landfalls. And so you can imagine where those regions would be. If you think about a map of the United States, it starts over on Texas and it kind of curves around the Gulf of Mexico and then it goes all the way down in Florida and then it all the way up the East Coast up through Maine. And that, that section where, where the land meets the ocean, that's where the, the places where they're, are, they're more susceptible to damage from, from high winds. So Florida, because it gets it from both sides, decided to try to make some changes. So in 2001, they put some new building codes into place for wood frame buildings in order to prevent the damage that happened every time a hurricane made landfall. So for wood frame buildings, they they used a code that, that required repetitive framing and numerous connections which provide multiple, often redundant, paths for resistance to wind forces. And so they began building stick framing with, with this new code. And then in 2004, after Hurricane Charlie passed through, FEMA noted that there was no structural damage to the new wood frame homes and buildings that followed the 2001 code. So they made a difference. They were actually able to resist hurricane force wind damage. That's good. Praise God. Resisting wind damage is a good thing. So is resisting a false worldview. Resisting a false worldview is a good thing. And now in chapter, chapter 15 of Job, we're going to see Eliphaz. He's going to confront Job again with his worldview. And we're going to see some recycled material. We're going to see a lot of the same things that he said the first time. 
We're going to see Bildad's shoe. Remember, Bildad's shoe, if you haven't been a part of the series, that's a label that we use to describe a system of thought that says if someone does good things and lives a life pleasing to God, then God will reward him and bless him with good things in this life. But if someone does bad things and commits evil acts and rebels against God, then God is going to bring punishment to that person in this life. So if you're wearing Bildad's shoe, you're, you're thinking these, these thoughts, and in that understanding, there is no room for undeserved suffering. If you're wearing Bildad's shoe, you're looking around, and if you see someone suffering, you say, oh, well, they must have done something wrong to deserve it. And if you look over here and you see someone being blessed and, and successful and, and, and seemingly uh, doing really well in life, you conclude, well, they must be doing good things. That's Bildad's shoe. It has no room for undeserved suffering. It, it has no place for looking at someone and, and who see them suffering and say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean they've, they've committed evil against God. There is no room for that. So we're going to see Bildad's shoe again. We're going to see also that hyper-low view of man that was introduced back in chapter uh, 4. Uh, do you remember that? The night spirit, the evil night spirit that caused the life has dread, that hyper-low view of man that said he's not worth uh, anything to God and that God could not ever regard him or, or love him because he's so evil. Yeah, that. So he says a lot of the same things he said the first time. But because Job is resisting his worldview, he's not wearing Bildad's shoe, he's not giving in to, to this worldview that they're, they're pushing on him. Because of that, Eliphaz brings the, some of the same things he said the first time, except with greater force. There's a lot less patience and civility and much more hostility. So we're going to break down the chapter, we want to understand what's being said here, but we're also going to talk about why it's so important to resist a false worldview. So here's Job 15, we're going to read all of it, 1 through 35. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Fear iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we, don't, we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Why did your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash? Do you turn your spirit against God, and you bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. 
The wicked man rides in pain all his days, though all his years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears, and prosperity the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield, because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist, and has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine, and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. So, to, to bring us all on the same page, we have concluded round one. Remember, there were three friends, and they've all spoken, and Job has had a chance to respond to each one of those. So we're, we're past round one. We are now in what's called round two. So Eliphaz was the first one to speak in round one. He's also the first one to speak in round two. And the first thing that strikes us as we begin to look at this passage is there is a noticeably different tone to Eliphaz. Very different than the first time. Uh, uh, Eliphaz started, if you recall back to his first speech, he started with these words. Job 4, 2 says, If one ventures a word with you, Will you be impatient? And he had some other opening remarks that were very civil. It it resembled a polite conversation the first time. He was still somewhat respectful as he approached Job. This time, a noticeably different tone. This time he leads off off with insults. Uh, Windy knowledge. Unprofitable talk. Eliphaz is saying to Job, "You're, you're not speaking anything that that looks like wisdom. Windy talk. They're just words. They're they're useless. They blow around and accomplish nothing. And then in verse 4 he says, Job, you're ruining your relationship with God as you do this. As you resist the worldview that we're trying to give you, as you you hold on to and try to maintain your innocence, you're revealing that you don't fear God. In fact, verse 5, iniquity teaches your mouth. You choose the tongue of the crafty. What he's saying is your sin is driving you to say these things. You, you, you have sinned somewhere. We can't see it, but we know you must have because all these things have happened. So there must be some secret sin. And in order to cover up that secret sin, you're, you're maintaining this integrity kind of facade. Well, we're not buying it, is what Eliphaz is saying. I don't need to do anything. Your own lips testify against you. Then in verses 7 through 9, there are a series of rhetorical questions, and these are designed to put Job in his place. I don't know if you caught that when we went through. They're just boom, boom, right after another. A bunch bunch of questions. 
Are you the first man who was born? He's being sarcastic, of course. Were you brought... Uh, were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? So one right after another, he fires these off. It's designed to knock Job down a few, a few notches. And then in verse 10, he plays the age card. You probably heard that. The gray hair and the aged are among us, older than your father. What's he doing? He's pulling rank. He's pulling age rank on Job. Obviously, Job's three friends are older than him, otherwise he wouldn't have said this. So he's reminding him that they're older. But is that how it works? The oldest are the wisest? Is that, is that what the Bible teaches? Perhaps someone's told this to you at some point in your life. I know I've heard it. I know I've heard it. Um, I've been doing this since before you were born. I'm old enough to be your father. I'm old enough to be your mother. You're just a baby. Have you heard that? Now, they may or may not be just joking around, but ultimately, that's disrespectful. Calling somebody in their 20s or 30s or 40s a baby, they're not a baby, they're an adult. What they're really saying, when someone says that, they're, they're trying to do this. They're trying to play the age card. And they're trying to say, I, because or by virtue of being older, am better than you. So please don't tell me what to do. I've been around. I've, I've, I've been around the sun a few more times than you. So don't try to teach me. But does the Bible teach that age automatically equals advanced wisdom? Actually, no. In fact, it explicitly says that's not the case. Age is not the determining factor when it comes to deciding who has more wisdom. In the context of determining how to respond to life's trials and, and tests, Job, uh, excuse me, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives, gen who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you, it doesn't say if you're older or you're younger, it just says if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, he will give it to you. So yes, it's possible for someone to have more wisdom who's younger than, than someone else. And then Psalm 119, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Well, why does the psalmist have more understanding than all his teachers? Is it because he's older than they are? No, they're his teachers. It's because he meditates on the law of God all the day. That's why. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the age card is not going to work for Eliphaz. They may indeed be older, but they are certainly not wiser. Now we come to the recycled material. Remember at the beginning I said Eliphaz is not saying a whole lot of new, new things to, to Job. He's just saying it louder and with more force and with a little less politeness. So verses 11 and 13 are, are a few introductory remarks. He talks about, are the comforts of God too small for you? He's talking about themselves. The, the three friends are the comforters. Is that not enough for you, Job? The, world, the word that deals gently with you, he's saying, we've tried to be gentle with you. You haven't responded, so now we're going to bring a little more punch. 
And then 12 and 13, Bildad is saying, well, what's happened to you? Why are you acting this way? Why, why, why are you turning away from God? Why are you rejecting what we are trying to, to tell you? And then he launches into some of the recycled material. So verses 14 through 16. This should look familiar. Do you remember where it's from? It's chapter 4. Look at this. I think it's helpful to see it side by side. Here's chapter 4 and chapter 15. Can a man be pure before his maker? What is man that he can be pure? You can see the parallelism there pretty clearly. And then Job 4, 18 through 19. Even in his servants he puts no trust. And his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed like the moth. And then now, in 15, Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Those are very closely parallel. We see the, the, the trust and the trust, and then we see the comparison. It's a little different. It says much more or how much less, but it's still the, the comparison. And then, um, you know, the analogy that a man is, you know, something to be crushed like a moth or who drinks injustice like water. So this is that same hyper-low view of man that was introduced by Eliphaz in chapter 4 after listening to the dreadful night spirit that had deceived him. So remember, Satan is the one who would like to take something like the doctrine of total depravity, which is true, that says we're all born with a sinful nature, we all have a depraved heart, and then twist it and pervert it into some false teaching that says that people are incapable of being loved by God or regarded by God as uh, significant because to him they are just insects or as Bildad is going to say in chapter 25, maggots and worms. That is not how God views his elect. So he's taking this hyper-low view of man and he's attempting to show Job that there is no such thing as undeserved suffering. Remember, under Bildad's shoe, there is no room for that. There is only room for this neat and tidy, you did something bad, that's why you're getting that. You did something good, that's why you're getting that. There's no room for undeserved suffering. So he's saying to Job, essentially, there's no way you can experience undeserved suffering, Job. You're, you're nothing, according to God. You're, you're like a worm or a maggot or an insect that needs to be crushed. You ever ceasingly drink water or excuse me, drink injustice like water. But, of course, we know better. Job is experiencing undeserved suffering. That's the reason at the beginning of the book it, made, uh, it, it went to great lengths to show us that Job is blameless. Fearing God. Turning from evil. Upright. So, once again, we reject the hyperloviated man and we reject Eliphaz's conclusion that Job cannot possibly be experiencing undeserved suffering because he is. Job was experiencing undeserved suffering. The followers of Jesus often experience undeserved suffering. And, of course, Jesus himself experienced undeserved suffering. It is possible. It does happen. In fact, undeserved suffering is the cornerstone of the gospel. Without undeserved suffering, there can be no undeserved grace. God, in his wisdom, 
has provided a way for our salvation that required Jesus to undergo undeserved suffering. The innocent one, the spotless lamb, paid the penalty for our sin. He took our penalty. Substitutionary atonement. So that when we turn to him in repentance and belief, we don't receive the penalty. It's been taken by Jesus. Instead, we receive his righteousness. It's imputed or credited to us so that God can justify us, declare us righteous. We are sinners, but we are given that legal status, that legal declaration. You are righteous. And therefore, he can accept us as his own. Verses 17 and 19, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen, I will declare. Well, what is this? More recycled material. This sounds very familiar. Back in Job chapter 5, life has a speech. The first time he said, what I have seen. Remember, this was one of the grounds for, for basing what he was telling Job. It was this, well, I've seen, or according to my experience, uh, this is how it works. The same thing here, what I have seen. Just recycled material. He's just saying it more forcefully. And then he appeals to the wisdom of those who have gone before, the collective wisdom of their ancestors. This should also be familiar. More recycled material. This is what Bildad had to say in his first speech, Job 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. So once again, Eliphaz is coming to Job and, and just kind of shaking his head. Job, Job, Job. This is the collective wisdom of everybody that's gone before us. Are you going to argue with everybody that's gone before us? Are you really saying that you're smarter and know more than everybody that's gone before us? It's a pretty powerful argument. Have, have you found something, Job, that nobody's found in, in, in the history of our fathers? Really, Job? Verses 18 and 19 are somewhat cryptic. What wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers. This, this doesn't mean that um, wise men have shared information and, and, and hid it from their fathers. Uh, we, if we were switched to word order a little around it, it means um, what wise men have uh, passed down from their fathers without hiding anything. That, that's kind of the sense of what that means. It means this is an unbroken chain. They, they've passed everything down and they haven't withheld anything. It doesn't mean they hid it from their fathers. It means they haven't hidden anything that their fathers have revealed to them. I hope that makes sense. And then to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. What does that mean? It means that these teachers, the collective wisdom that's been passed down, has been passed down from one generation to the next without any outside influence to those that have been given the land. This is, this is wisdom that is, has been part of an unbroken chain without any kind of foreigner or, or some kind of strange people group coming in and bringing outside philosophies that are very different from ours. He's saying this is pure, unadulterated wisdom. So you must accept it. Well, verses 20 through 35 are all collections. We're not going to go through it line by line. It would take much too long, but they're all descriptions of what happens to a wicked man. 
And although the wicked man in these verses is anonymous, the unspoken message from a life as to Job is, you're that man. Here's, here's the fate of the wicked man. That's you. The sword, famine, darkness, distress, poverty, and consuming fire. All these things come upon the wicked man. So he paints this picture and the connection is this. Job, look, you've, you've experienced these things. The sword has come against you and your family. They've all died. Remember the raiders that came in and, and stole all your property? You once lived in luxury and affluence, but no more. Your wealth has not endured. You have lost their children before their time like an unripe grape being shaken off the vine. That's what that's a picture of, is losing children early. So he's trying to prove logically that Job is the wicked man. It's, it's one of these, you know, these, uh, these necessary conclusions. This is the fate of the wicked man. Uh, Job, you've experienced the fate of the wicked man. Therefore, you are a wicked man. That's what he's trying to do. So it seems like a life has, has triumphed. Uh, the wicked experience these things, you've experienced these things, therefore you're wicked. So don't sit there and tell me you're blameless and upright and you fear God and turn from evil because obviously you're not. Well, what do we say to all this? This is a, uh, this, this is a life as bringing the same thing much more forcefully. If we had to have a detailed summary of chapter 15, we might go something like this. This is a life as speaking for the second time. And instead of with patience and civility, he approaches Job with much more aggression and intolerance. He tries to show Job that he is wrong by appealing to his older age, the night spirit hyper low view of man, the tradition of the elders, and by logically proving that Job is wicked. That's quite an argument. And he's doing that because he wants Job to accept what he's saying. That's what's bothering the three friends more than anything, that Job is resisting their worldview. Job is not going to wear Bildad's shoe, and that bothers them. It really irritates them. So at the heart of this, this is a conflict of worldviews. And because Job doesn't accept that worldview, they become increasingly hostile towards him. Now today we see the same thing played out among us, not between four friends, this isn't between you and three other friends, but between the church and the world. We see this being played out. Now the worldview issues are not the same, nobody's trying to get us, at least they're not prominent, let's put it that way. Uh, Bill Dead's shoe is not the number one issue today, neither is um, the hyper-low view of man, although they are there. But the world increases its hostility towards the church as the church resists its worldview. Now somebody might say, now hold on a second, Pastor, I was up with you until, until right there, because to me it seems like the real issue is faith in Christ. The real dividing line is Jesus. That, that's what causes the division between the church and the world, is faith in Christ or no faith in Christ. I would respond by saying, yes, Jesus is the dividing line, but I want to show how critical and how intertwined and inseparable these two things are. So let's do that. Let's look at a few topics that make up a personal worldview. These are, these are not an exhaustive list. We're going to just hit four of them, but they're biggies. Creation, abortion, gender, and marriage. 
We understand that there are two sides to each of these worldview issues. Uh, creation, uh, the biblical view says we God created everything in a span of six days. He created it good. The other side, the worldly side says, no, we evolved over millions of years. Abortion, I, on one side we say that it's the shedding of innocent blood, it's the murder of the most innocent in our society, and if in this place where they should be most protect, protected, the mother's womb, they are being snuffed out violently. The other side says, no, it's just a choice. It's, uh, in fact, it's reproductive justice. That's the new thing. If you, if you tag something with justice in today's world, well, then that's the end of the argument. Because if you're against it, the world can come back and say, are you against justice? Okay. So, murder or justice. Gender, there are only two, male and female. The world says, no, there's, there's all kinds. There's, there's a sliding scale all the way in between, and you can choose to be one or the other, just... Have some sur- just declare it. Have some surgery, take some hormones. And then marriage, one man and one woman for life. The other side, if they seek marriage at all, it is anything. It can be a man and a man, a woman and a woman. So these are two very radical, different, polar opposite worldview sides. Whose worldview are they? This one is a biblical worldview. It's built on the foundation of Scripture. It's God's Word. It's true. It matches reality. There are actually only two genders. To believe God's worldview is to believe what is good and right. The other side is the world's worldview. It's built on the foundation of a lie. It's false. It's not true. It doesn't match reality. And to believe, it's it's Satan's. To believe Satan's worldview is to believe evil and wrong. So let's be very clear about what these two things are. One is from God and one is from Satan. Let's just put that on the table. And I don't want us for a minute to think that these issues don't matter or that we're free as followers of Jesus Christ. There's liberty in Christ to believe whatever you want to believe about these issues. Because the Bible is always true, we must believe what is true and right. Once again, I, I, can, I can hear the pushback, and if I were preaching this in a liberal church, there would immediately be, be red flags being waved, and they'd say, hold on a minute. You're preaching a gospel plus. You're preaching a Jesus plus gospel. Remember, a Jesus plus gospel is a gospel that says you must believe in Jesus Christ, and you must believe in these things in order to be saved. Paul addressed this in the book of Galatians. The Judaizer says, said, yeah, you have to have faith in Christ and you have to be circumcised. And the answer to that was very strong in Galatians 1. No. So the pushback would be, you're preaching a Jesus plus gospel. And I would respond by saying this. Listen carefully. I'm not saying that you have to believe this side on these issues to be saved. But I'm saying once you are saved, you will believe this side on these issues. Do you see the difference? Because these things are from God. To believe them is right and true. Now, 
Is it possible to, to come to God, to, to put your faith in Jesus and be a brand new believer and still have a lot of baggage and a lot of things that, you, that your positions and your opinions are still over here and on this side because you just came to faith? And Yes, of course. Of course. If someone has, has just been called by God and the Spirit of God works in them and moves in them and calls them to, them, to himself and, and they're still over here on a lot of these issues and they haven't thought them through and they haven't got good teaching, I wouldn't be surprised to, have, to see somebody still over here. I understand that. We get that. I'm talking about somebody who's been in the church 5, 10, 20, 30 years who's sat under good preaching, who has been given much light and yet they cling to the lie. Because they believe it's possible to hold those worldview positions and have faith in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. God gives his people a desire to believe his word, a desire to please him, and a desire to live their lives according to his truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. These are Jesus' words. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Allow them to be continually more and more conformed to the image of God, conformed to your truth. Followers of Jesus will want to build their worldview on the teaching of truth and scripture. So, uh, like Job's friends, the world does not like it when people build their worldview on scriptural truth. Um, they don't like it when they resist the worldly worldview or satanic worldview. And this really isn't a surprise. Here's Jesus in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the dividing line is Jesus. But when the world encounters someone who does not belong to it, there's hostility. Now, here's why the worldview is so critical. Remember I said faith in Jesus. Absolutely, that is number one. But I want to see how, I want to show you how inseparable these are. Here's why. When the world encounters someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but holds these positions on those worldview issues, is there hostility? No. No. In fact, there are a lot of professing believers. There are a lot of people that are walking around saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave. Maybe, maybe not even that orthodox, but they're, they're saying, I believe in Jesus. And yet they're holding these views. Does the world show them any hostility? None whatsoever. The world gives them a pass because they're on the world side. They're believing the lie. They're living the lie. They're not applying God's word. They're not keeping God's word. They're saying one thing, but they're living differently. They're living outside of Christ. That's why these things are so important. It's one thing to profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to have faith in Jesus Christ and live it out. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
So in the United States, the church has enjoyed a relatively uh, uh, brief or maybe extended period of uh, relief from, from persecution and hostility, not so much in the other places of the world. And we don't hear a lot about those unless you subscribe to Voices of the Martyrs, but there are a lot of places in the world where they are being persecuted for faith in Jesus. But this is and has and is changing, and I think the reason is because we don't belong to the world, and this is revealing the true church, and the true church is resisting these worldview issues. They're actually living out and applying Jesus' word, and that reveals their faith in Christ. So like Job's friends, let's not be surprised if the world starts to treat the church with a little less civility and politeness and a little more aggression and hostility. I don't think we should be surprised when that happens. It may be difficult to be the church in the United States. It's interesting, in John 16, after Jesus laid all this out, after Jesus talked about the world hating you because it hated me, it says that, he said this, John 16, 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Why did he say that? Why did he warn his followers ahead of time, look, the world is going to hate you. Because it hated me, it's going to hate you. Because of your connection to me. And because you keep my word, they're going to hate you. And then it, he said, I said these things to keep you from falling away. I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's to keep them from falling away. It's an advanced warning. Jesus knows it's going to be difficult for you to remain standing on my word. And you're going to be tempted to fall away. And these are words for us today. It's easy to fall away. The world makes it very difficult to stand on Jesus' word and it rewards those who fall away and who do not resist and who accept and start believing what the world believes. In fact, it welcomes them. The world welcomes those who turn away and who fall away from Jesus' word. The world gives them a hero's welcome. I mean, cheers, hugs. Uh, thumbs up, likes, hearts, smiley faces. On a regular basis, there are popular leaders in the church going on record saying, I was wrong before, but now I see clearly. I, w- I was wrong on, fill in the blank, this particular issue, but, but no more. I was wrong to have said those things in the past. I was wrong to have believed those things in the past. And the world slow claps the approval. Thanks for coming over to our side. You're one of us now. With all the rights and privileges that come with that. That's what falling away looks like. It's denying Jesus' words. And denying Jesus' words is denying Jesus. I want us to see this, this connection. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
Jesus is saying, you cannot disregard my word, you cannot disobey my word, and still legitimately claim to love me. That doesn't work. If you do not believe my word, then you don't love me. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's apply that to a worldview issue. If you don't believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, then you don't love Jesus. And I understand that is a strong statement, and I understand that someone might charge me with gospel plus, but again, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to believe that to come to Christ. I'm saying once you're in Christ, you will believe that because of what Jesus said. Those are his words, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, two genders, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage, according to Jesus. So if you don't believe that, if you don't believe his word, then you do not love him. Here's the relationship between Jesus and his word. It's inseparable. We, we cannot break these two apart. We cannot pick them apart. We cannot peel them back and say, I have faith in Christ, and I also believe this and this on these worldly issues. You can't. It doesn't work. Some people don't understand that relationship. Some people in the church don't understand that relationship. Maybe they've never been taught that. Maybe they've seen that model by their parents. You know, maybe a generation ago it was, it was, it was kind of more um, acceptable to have this uh, compartmentalized faith that said, I believe in Jesus and I go to church every Sunday and I believe this, this, and this on these world issues. I don't know. Maybe that might have been part of it. Maybe they just enjoy being known and viewed as avant-garde and progressive. You know, there are some people that are like that. They just, they like to be known as the one that stands just outside of the mainstream thought. And they like to be that person in the church. Maybe that's why they do it. And then they claim to be Christians. So when we look at the words of Jesus, when we see this inseparable connection between his word and, and loving him and, and the legitimacy of being his follower, I, I hope there's no one here that, that still thinks we can feel these apart. I, I hope there's no one here that still has that idea that, no, I could be a Christian, maybe even a strong Christian, but yet I'm free to believe whatever I want to believe on these issues because it's all about faith alone. The worldview topics, and there are others like these, I've mentioned the first, those top four kind of, but they're not debatable issues. They're not culturally conditioned. They're not uh, constructs of society that change when society changes. That's not what these are. These are foundational biblical truths. If you look at each one of those, they're all in Genesis 1 and 2. Those are all very, they're fundamental to believing in God's word. They're fundamental. So we see why worldviews matter. Worldviews matter. We see why it's so important to resist and not fall away and adopt the world's worldviews. They're satanic. Worldviews reveal heart allegiances. 
they reveal either a love for God or a love for the world. So if there's anybody here that's, that's maybe been taught wrong or, or thought that it's still okay or, or was still trying to sort it out, I would encourage you to take action. Repent and believe. Repent of every false worldview, every lie from Satan that you've ever heard and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Turn to his truth. And keep turning. Like the, like the building code in Florida for wood frame houses, every time you, you delve into God's word, every time you, you sit under faithful preaching, every time you, you, you have more light shown to you by the Holy Spirit, every time you connect with another brother or sister, every time you go deep, that's like building another path, another redundant path that is able to help resist the winds of a satanic worldview that are blowing very hard right now. And it doesn't look like the weather is going to clear anytime soon. So I want us to see Job trusting God. Yes, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But I also want us to see Job resting, or excuse me, resisting to accept the worldview of his three friends. He will not wear Bildad's shoe because he knows it's a lie. He knows it's not true. So believe in Jesus, believe also in his word. Resist any worldview that is not of God. Resist the winds that are blowing. And I want to close with Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and a great was the fall of it. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we put our faith and trust in you, we know that you are faithful to us, faithful in, in teaching us and showing us your truth. We know that your Holy Spirit, in addition to sealing us for our day of salvation, also teaches us, reveals, gives light, opens eyes to see your truth. Your Holy Spirit gives us a desire, a longing, a wanting for your truth. Father, sanctify us. Continue to work on our hearts. Father, we want to abandon anything that is not of you. And that includes evil thoughts and clinging to lies or a desire to be accepted by the world, a desire to blend in.
Father, we ask you to fill us with your spirit. Teach us your truth. Amen.